Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. Today's episode is called, It's Hard to Kill a Banking Crisis. Overnight, the Fed raised interest rates again by another 25 basis points, and the situation in global banks continues to evolve. A banking crisis on its own is unlikely to create major economic issues, but a credit crunch following a banking crisis will likely create significant problems. Is this time different? Today, we have Damien Klassen, Nucleus Wealth Chief Investment Officer, and David Llewellyn-Smith, Nucleus Wealth Chief Strategist, here to discuss the topic. Guys, welcome. Thanks, Sam. Good day, Sam. Yeah, this, this is part three, so uh, uh, obviously discussing the unfolding situation. So yeah, it should be, should be interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, I should clarify as well, so, so just for your intro, I guess I might have missed a word in there. So, so what we're saying is that, look, we don't think this banking crisis, we think banking crises in general can, can der- derail economies, but we think this banking crisis isn't enough to, to, to derail it, but um, there's, uh, we're sowing the seeds for a, for a credit crunch right now. Or, or I guess we're we're starting a credit crunch right now, um, and so and that's what we're that's you know that's the that, that's the real focus on this. So um, you know, some in the prior episodes we sort of ran through what was happening and, and, and why, and, and and followed up on some of the weaknesses. Um, in particular, we spoke about uh, you know in our first version of it, sort of pre pre Credit Suisse falling over and and, and others. Um, you know, we spoke about the weaknesses in the uh, U.S. regional banking sector. Uh, then we sort of morphed on to, to talking about you know what what would be required and what was you know what was likely from the uh, uh, from the as these banks were, were, were being shut down what, what it would need to be done to short circuit it and um, it's sort of it's still progressing largely towards what we think our base case is um, and so we thought we'd get into that um, in a little bit more detail today um, but uh, and we've got Dave on to, to have a bit of a chat as well so we might uh, hand over to you Dave maybe the uh, the, uh, the this time is different, the famous, those famous last words. Just, I'm just going to jump in quickly. Uh, we just have to put the disclaimer out there. Just a reminder, this in, uh, information in this podcast is general advice and does not take into account your personal situation. If you do want to discuss your personal financial situation, please go to our website at newkillswealth.com forward slash contact and you can book a call with me to have a chat. Over to you, Dave. Thank you. So... So yeah, we might just swing straight into uh, the detail of uh, where this credit crunch that we see evolving is coming from and why it is different. Um, <clears throat> what what isn't different is that, uh, as expected, the Federal Reserve has hiked interest rates until something has broken, uh, as it always does, or usually does, and uh, does whenever it has uh, an inflation problem. There are, you know, many recent monetary tightening cycles where uh, it didn't, and so it stopped raising rates before it broke something uh, other than perhaps, you know, uh, relatively small uh, stock market corrections. I'm talking about sort of 2050. This time we do have an inflation problem, so the US has, has hiked rates until Basically, the U.S. regional banking sector has broken, uh, and we know that it commenced a few weeks ago with Silicon Valley Bank and a couple of others. 
and this has in part been triggered off by uh, a credit a, a deposit run that was already underway but it's certainly gotten considerably worse since uh, those bank failures um, JPM has a note out this morning saying uh, they think about 1.1 trillion in deposits have been redistributed from small and medium-sized banks in the US in the last uh, month or two um, and you know there have been various efforts public and private to head off this bank run um, of you know withdrawing deposits from the smaller banks and shifting them to either larger banks that are seen as too big to fail or to other instruments like money markets etc where you can get really good yields now after all the rate hikes so uh, uh, that's a lot of money that's flooded out and along with that there's been some bad investments by these banks but most of them financial in fact nearly all of them financial so far uh, and so we have this unusual situation where we have a banking crisis underway without an economic crisis and normally uh, it comes it goes the other way around in the in in a monetary tightening cycle where the fed will break something an asset class or the economy itself uh, and the bad lo bad loans flow into the banks as a result of that and so you end up with a form of banking crisis and credit crunch but this time we're leading with that um, probably the result of sort of 15 years of QE which means you know a bunch of banks uh, small the regionals in particular in the US which which were not really uh, re-regulated heavily after the GFC in fact um, they've been quite liberalized um, and so they you know with all this QE kind of underpinning them and low rates and liquidity everywhere they've made a lot of really bad investments so um, those investments have come back to bite them we've got this uh, what now is developing into what is going to have to probably be a restructuring of this sector's balance sheet that is there going to jump in as well Dave yep I mean I guess the partly it's partly it's that but it's also um, the fact that we've had the uh, you know a record rate record speed of rate rises so um, yeah some of the, so the ones that have gone under it so far you know yeah it's idiosyncratic they've done some stuff wrong um they had some that they didn't look like a lot of the other banks and so yeah they do have some some particular issues but um you know that it's still been brought on by the speed uh and magnitude of of, of the rate rises so far and, yep. and i guess the bigger issue is yeah look um you know the actual banking prices when or a traditional banking crisis when you start seeing company corporates fall over and that is then drives concern about hey which bank might be solvent or insolvent that's still yet to come like that's a you know we're sort of like having a mini crisis now and then we have a credit crunch and then we have a proper banking crisis later on when whenever i'm wondering hey are these companies that made all these dead loans are they actually still solvent? so you've stolen my punchline oh i'm sorry dave yeah, yeah. Ruined it. <laughs> so so you've ruined my joke so yes that is what is different this time is it looks like it's going to be a two-phase banking crisis um, where we've we've had the, we've got the banks breaking leading well this particular segment of banks leading into uh, you know some kind of economic slowdown <coughs> um, there it appears they are very likely to me that they're going to have to re restructure balance sheets deleverage and that will 
curtail credit? Are we lifting lending standards? Uh, and then we'll get the flow on effects from that in weakening uh, economic data. And then the bad loans will arrive in a second phase for the same banks. And so it shapes as quite a difficult uh, um, downturn for banking as a result, because you have these two phases, a double shock, if you like. Uh, now, why do we think, sorry. And even, even in a way, I mean, that, you know, I'd, I'd even say that uh, you know, most banking crises sort of have this this part where, where um, you yeah, know, they start to get worried about insolvencies, the people start getting worried about which banks may or may not be solvent. Um, and then the banks themselves actually um, stop all the lending and, and cut back on lending and suddenly raise the credit standards massively. And that actually creates another shock because there's there's a whole bunch of companies that and, and, and individuals who, who might have been able to get credit and probably might have been able to stand up, but all of a sudden they're facing interest rates much higher and or they just can't get the credit because everyone's tightened the standards and that then makes more losses. And yeah, that's right. And so it's a three phase. Although we're talking about small banks here or regional banks in the US, the segment is not small at all. Um, it comprises of roughly 40% of credit in the US, half of SME credit, small and medium enterprises, 80% of commercial lending, commercial property lending. Uh, and even more importantly, it has a much stronger delta than large banks, which means it was growing faster, basically. Um, had much looser lending standards. Uh, and and so it was a terrific source for growth in the economy because, you know, lots of credit coming out on loose standards, etc. Whereas all of the, the heavily regulated, um, systemically important banks have been held back. So, so the segment was growing and gobbling up the market share of credit in the US. So uh, that makes it even worse, of course, because the stronger um, Delta means it was contributing more to growth than its market share would appear. Um, so uh, we think basically that's what's happening. Happening. Um, if we do, you want to chime in here quickly, Sam? Or yeah, I'll, I'll jump in and just say a couple of words. We'll be back with the investment insights in a moment. Uh, at Nucleus Wealth, first and foremost, we're an active and passive investment manager. If you like what you're hearing and want some help with your investing, we can do it for you via our active portfolios, our tactical core Australia and core international portfolios. Use the insights shared in this podcast to construct and manage your investment. The three tactical portfolios we offer hold combinations of international shares, Australian shares, government bonds and cash. And we vary the asset allocation on these portfolios with the goal of protecting your capital in times of market uncertainty. We also have the active core portfolios that, uh, that are purely international or Australian equity portfolios chosen from the MSCI World Index using our quality and value investment philosophy. You can find out more at nucleuswealth.com. Back to you, Dave. Thanks, Sam. So we've got a couple of charts here on what <clears throat> excuse me, we, we're watching to track this. <clears throat> excuse me, there, there are two um, bank lending standards uh, metrics that we follow in the US and in Europe. Now, the one in the US is very useful. It's operated by the Fed. Uh, <clears throat> it comes out um, quarterly, but there's a weekly update on it. So it's quite real time. 
it's very good and i have a chart here from barclays uh, showing where lending stands have gone and you can see that they're already uh, well above normal and quickly rising towards the type of peaks that we see pre-recessions in the last three or four in fact in the 1990s uh, the millennium uh, the gfc and and the uh, COVID shock so, yeah, so, so, so the, the only times we've had higher yeah the only times we've had higher and tighter lending standards <clears> than today is the 1991 property crash the 19 uh sorry the 2000 <clears> tech boom just before the 2000 tech boom just before the financial crisis and uh well and i think it's it probably more coincident in the um in the pandemic as the pandemic hit um lending standards just went through the roof and then yeah. um the fed opened the floodgates and and they went back up through the floor that's right and you can see in the us in particular at the moment um the the small and medium-sized firms are copying it hardest and it doesn't take einstein to figure out that 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 uh will result relatively quickly in job losses once we see uh, those firms slow and, and lose access to some of their credit. Um, and that's, uh, I think SME, it's at least half of US jobs, and I think it might be more. Yeah, yeah I think it's more than, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and so, 80%. I don't know, it's a lot. Yeah, anyway. yeah. In, in a big picture sense, um, uh, when we're going through what we're watching for, there's sort of like, there's different sort of series of data and trying to work out what's going on. And, and the thing to note is that job losses are going to be like the last thing. They're like, they're the, yeah. The, once we find out about the job losses, the stock market will already be down. Yes. And, and you'll actually be starting to think about when do I when do I start to get back in? In um, terms of in terms of the formal data, I mean there are some leading indexes yes. for that. Yeah. Um, so so there's yes, yeah, so there's leading indexes, which is it's just surveys and it's questions about what think people think are gonna happen and it's trying to get up to date data. But you can't trust it as much as sort of the next set of data, which is okay, now now it's sort of preliminary sets and then then you know a few months later you'll get the the final sets of data and so um yeah the, we're going to talk about these ones as being and these are surveys so um they're very useful but they're not always accurate i guess is the, the disclaimer and you need to take into account what else is going on and 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 pulling together four or five different things and, and seeing if you're getting the same messages and whether um you know you're getting different messages from small banks uh, sorry small company surveys versus versus purchasing you know, indexes and things like that Although I, I would I would say I would almost call the lending standards survey data from the central bank's hard data. Like I think if you if you measure those against you know things like the ISM as this chart, you see the correlation is really good. Yeah, um, but, but I guess the problem you know is that um, the problem with it is that it's uh, these are what you call diffusion indexes. So you, so you go if everyone's tightening, but they're tightening from very loose standards. There's a difference to to sure. you know, and, oh, no, of course. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like if it was to roll over now, then I, you know, I'd probably roll over with it. But yeah. I don't think it's going to. I think it's going to get worse. Um, now we're seeing the sort of leading edge of similar in the eurozone, which is the second chart on the same page here, where you can see that um, lending standards are are also going up. Uh, and the you know the record of of the the composite PMI following those is also very good. So a really interesting question in this is 
is how badly it will affect Europe. I mean, we've already obviously seen the contagion into Credit Suisse, which has been, you know, very swiftly mopped up uh, by by the Swiss um, central bank. But in doing so, there's all sorts of fallout in funding costs for other banks, um, not least um, via the cocoa bonds, um, or as Australians call the uh, hybrids, um, which were bailed in uh, at, to some extent, a little bit ahead of equity holders, even, and so um, uh, you know, there's been a repricing of those. That said, you know, some of the more typical, um, you know, financial contagion indexes, the ones that were all went completely nuts during the GFC, um, things like um, FRA OIS overnight index swaps and the TED spread and things like that, they're actually okay. They're not too bad. Uh, and it's the same in, in if we look at credit default swaps, they've all risen, but not too bad. It doesn't look like it's that kind of crisis particularly. But yeah. Actually, can I just explain what those ones are for people? So sure. um, what, they're, what we're basically trying to look at is, is borrowing costs for banks versus borrowing costs for, for, for governments and, and seeing is, there, is that gap blowing out? And, and it's, it's larger. But during the financial crisis, it became extreme in terms of the levels. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and that's, and so once you're on, there was that one, and then there was, there was a TED one, which is actually called something different now. And um, uh, yeah, sorry, I'll leave it at that. Yep. Um, uh, and the interesting point to note on Europe here is uh, Europe's a lot more um, dependent on bank credit. And the US is so you need less of a, uh, a crunch there for it to have more of an impact on growth. Uh, and so you know it's arguable that that the eurozone might actually get hit by this at least as hard as the US. And um, who knows, maybe even worse if if uh, you know we have another accident, which is entirely possible because of course the ECB is still hiking in fifty basis point increments. And I, I mean. On that subject, you know, when was the last time we saw the Fed hike 25 basis points in the middle of a banking crisis? Like, you know, that's that's something new for a generation of investors. And and it is indicative, you know, of, of the fact that they're between a rock and a hard place in, in a banking crisis versus inflation. Uh, but I think ultimately... You know, it's more an indication that this banking crisis, uh, the Fed probably is, and perhaps the ECB as well, are actually not that upset about this banking crisis and the tightening of credit that it's going to bring. In fact, they may they may actually, you know, be happy to sit on the sidelines and let it uh, let it evolve until it it gets bad enough uh, that enough. And does enough damage to growth that it really manages to, to snuff out what's what's left of the inflation pulse. So, because the reality is, as you said, it's they're, they're raising rates. They're trying to they're trying to slow credit growth down. The raising of rates itself is not the is not the goal. The goal is slow credit down and, and, and bring inflation back. Quite right. And in fact, this is going to bring this is going to slow credit down dramatically. Again, and in fact, everything we've just described about the SME crunch in the US and potentially in Europe. You know, it it would be entirely, it would be simple for the Fed to actually do whatever it takes to stop that cr that crunch. 
if they wanted to. Like they could yeah. simply create a new facility that bought everything small bank possible in the US, especially you know all of their all forms of funding and bonds. As simple as that promise they made in they made a promise in the in the pandemic where they said. Um, we're going to make sure corporate bonds versus government bonds don't blow out past whatever level, exactly and they right. never even had to buy them because markets so themselves. They, they can do a similar thing. They can do a yield curve control for the regional banks, and and that would be the end of it. Hmm. And you know the regional banks would go straight back to lending and what have you. So they're clearly using, to some extent, if not using it. But I mean, they they recognise that that this is part of the process that they're in, and so they're not desperate to to run in and rescue it. Uh, to my mind, I think they've done enough uh, in the US and, and probably in Europe, but certainly in Australia, they have, um, and they could just let it run. But you know, they, they they appear to be hawkish enough and concerned enough about inflation to really put the boot in. So you know that that will simply mean that we'll get uh, a more severe economic downturn than otherwise. But it probably does, you know, at least uh, ensure that we're we're going to to give inflation a whipping in the short term. Um, so I might flip over to you, Sam, briefly. Okay, sounds good. So we'll be back again shortly. Uh, if you uh, if you like what you're hearing and, and want to do it yourself, uh, we have direct indexing. Um, and uh, we're the first, Nucleus Wealth is the first to offer passive direct indexing in Australia, which has been labelled ETFs 2.0. These are currently a huge and growing segment of the market in the US and Europe. And the benefit of direct indexing is you can customise your index as you directly hold each stock in the index via your professionally managed account, as opposed to an ETF where you have one fixed security. Ours are similar in cost to many ETFs, and they allow you to customize your investment with our ready-made and bespoke ethical sector and asset class screens and tilts. We have around 80 to choose from, and this allows you to customize your portfolio to suit your individual preferences. An example of how you can use this is you can exclude fossil fuel stocks, exclude any stocks involved in war, nuclear power, tobacco, gambling, or many others which you can see on screen. Uh, and then on the other side, you can also include, for example, a lithium battery tilt. Uh, you could include a, a cloud computing tilt, a cybersecurity tilt, uh, or any of the other 30 tilts that we have on offer just on the screen now. And you can have a look more at nucleuswealth.com. So that was a quick message from our sponsor. Uh, back to you, Damo and Dave. <laughs> Good. So now we're going to go through, you know, the the kind of allocations that we're using um, as we see this uh, essentially as an end of cycle shock uh, for developed economies, um, and you know we think in due course that will suck in a lot of the emerging markets as well. Although of course uh, with the China reopening, you know, there's a there's a kind of protective bubble a little bit around around China and some associated economies, though even so we think they'll get hit by a trade shock before too long, which will make it more difficult, but you know, they may be able to come through it a bit better than the developed markets. So I mean the first the first cab of the rank is, you know, Forex and um, you know, is there is there a place to hide in Forex if if this plays out the way we're describing? 
typically you would buy US dollars at this point of the cycle uh, as a safe haven trade. We've seen a hint of that here and there uh, in recent weeks since the banking crisis started, but, but basically the US dollar has gone down through the crisis so far. Um, you can't really use the fact that it's a US banking crisis as an excuse because the GFC was very US centric or at least began there and was most intense there. Uh, and yet that drove the US dollar safe haven trade. I think my favorite argument for why perhaps that safe haven trade isn't working so far is um, the US dollar was already so high. We've come through a period of, the, of a near perfect storm for the US dollar, which drove it up to uh, 40 year highs. Was it? Um, Anyway, it was very high, and so it's difficult to, to sort of drive it much higher from from such lofty heights. Nonetheless, I, I don't really trust the converse trade um, of of buying euro. Uh, I, uh, you know, aside from anything else, I think it's only a matter of time before the same crisis arrives on the European shores. In fact, we've seen it arrive there already, and I think it will get worse there too. Um, the ECB typically over tightens um, uh, more than the Fed, so they're likely to do that again. As we say, they're still going in 50 basis point increments. They have uh, a very uh, sticky inflation problem in Europe as well. So, you know, the ECB's focused there. Um, so I'm not finding a lot of safe haven stuff in Forex at this point. Um, as I say, typically I, I would love the US dollar, but uh, right now, it's quite, um, look, it's atypical enough for me uh, to, to not see the, the the US dollar as the safe haven of choice. I, I, I can't see anything else as an alternative to that. Uh, so I'm just kind of thinking about leaving Forex alone. Um, gold sort of presents itself as a possibility, but being the, the sort of undollar and flip side of the US dollar, that's not reliable either, if I don't really know what, what the US dollar is going to do. I'm not comfortable with gold. I certainly think gold's a good buy if you've got an outlook beyond, you know, 12 months or so in terms of ultimately the US dollar will begin to fall as we come out of all of this end of cycle stuff and into the new cycle. That That's the, that's the more reliable play on gold. So <clears throat> um, bonds and cash we're very keen on. So we've got a very Strong overweight on bonds, uh, you know, the argument being, of course, that these various banking um, morph into credit, morph into economic, morph back into banking crises will uh, force inflation lower um, over due, in due course. And, uh, you know, ultimately central banks will pile in with big cuts because, you know, that's not, that, that cocktail is pretty nasty for growth. <clears throat> and we'll get some some employment shocks before too long. Um, so we like the look of bonds. Uh, you know, bond steepeners, especially with the short end, but also the long. You, know, you make more money at the long when you get a rally. And so, you know, we're, we're reasonably long duration. Um, cash is good, of course, right now. It's not, not least because stocks just haven't priced this properly at all yet. And so just having some dry power is a really good idea. Uh, these days, you know, the 60-40 portfolio of stocks and bonds is a little bit out of fashion and a lot more people are talking 
um, you know, a portion, a significant portion of your portfolio should be in commodities. I don't really buy that argument yet. It's more, that's more of an infl a structural inflation argument, possible, but I'm not fully committed. Um, and I, I am concerned that com commodities are still quite high. And despite the China recovery, it's not looking, it's looking okay for Chinese property, property rebound, but still not enough evidence for it. And perhaps, uh, you know, more of a l-shaped or swoosh shaped recovery for that uh and so, and with the trade shock to come into china i'm i'm not i'm not a keen on commods here either uh still if you look at oil i think that's giving you a good story about what comes for the entire commodity sector as this unravels uh, and i'm saying that of course because it's been weak and weakening and this is despite a a universal cheerleading cheer squad from from wall street telling everybody to buy oil for the last six months uh, so oil is definitely telling us that um, uh, commodities have a problem um, and in australia uh you know the old the old chestnut um has property bottomed <clears throat> well i certainly think that the rba is finished um it'll definitely hold uh, at the next meeting, I, mean, I, I think it's probably done the whole cycle, um, and I, I do think that we'll see quite quite large rate cuts over the next twelve months as well. So you know, Australian property presents itself as a good asset in those uh, conditions, and indeed, if, if we look at the history of the last two downturns at least. You know, Aussie property has absolutely flown out of the blocks the moment we look like going into recession. So, um, in fact, three downturns, I should say. Um, so, uh, I don't, I don't see any difference uh, this time around on that basis. I do think that there will be, you know, big rate cuts as this plays out, um, and so property will probably rebound. And we've of course got the immigration pump going behind it as well. Yeah, but I guess the danger is there's another leg down before. If if if, you, if things get if if we get a, a larger employment shock, then you could see the leg down before you get that that turnaround. Yeah, you could. Although, you know, we've lit, I've watched the the Australian property bubble march through uh, at least two employment shocks without really skipping a beat. Um, I don't know why it hasn't fallen further before it started to stabilise. I, you know, like it, just the price of credit um, should have driven it for, further down than it has. Uh, it may be um, immigration that stabilised it, because uh, I mean immigration is running at a rate in Australia that is unprecedented, uh, and so that's let's let's call it what it is, which is a a third macro lever like the scale of it is definitely has macro uh implications both for housing demand and most importantly for uh, the rba wages um most of the soft uh soft leading data on wages is now starting to come in you know like downright mushy uh and i suspect that uh, the, the whole wages boom such as it was largely bypassing australia is is about to go in you know back to yogurt um 
So, you know, that obviously gives you a read on, on you know, how many cuts you might get out of the RBA yeah. over the next... I, I, I lost track of which metaphor we were using there once we got to yogurt. Yeah, well, anything soft and mushy, you can associate with. But I guess the point there, though, is that the Australia's never never saw the, the wage growth boom we saw anywhere else, and, and it looks like we've already turned it so that we're not going to see... Yes. Um, well, well, it, was, and, and it, it looked like it was kind of coming. Um, we got the leading edge of it. Yeah. But, you know, the Labor government um, opened the, the borders and, and swamped it with cheap foreign labour. And, of course, we know where that ends up. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, we, so. we edged our way back to average almost before it. Yes, we did. Up. Before we smashed <laughs> it back to, to bugger all. Um, so, um, so that's your sort of basic uh asset classes that we're working on country allocation i mean uh, you know em is probably going to be better than dm but uh, uh, i i don't sorry have... emerging markets yes so emerging markets but i don't I don't, have, I don't have a lot of faith in that either to be honest because uh, you know once developed markets go then you know trade goes worldwide and and that that is well, one you know enormous leg that underpins just about all emerging markets yeah, and most emerging markets, ex-China, are, are commodity exporters rather than commodity importers. And so they are, and so, and, and so I think commodities will get hit. It shouldn't be as bad as some of the other um, recessionary shakeouts for commodities, but bad enough, I, I still think there's downside. So um, I'm not, you know, you, Jeremy Grantham and such are saying by EM, I mean, if you like, but um, and it probably is a little more. Safe haven, but it doesn't doesn't recommend itself as especially safe to me. Um, factor allocations. I mean, we're we're looking at quality uh, basically very much because we're looking at um, you know sort of operational leverage and pricing power uh, as key features of good companies going forward. Because of, of course, all a huge part of all of this is the squashing of inflation, and that will. Uh, also squash corporate margins, and so anybody who's who's can hold on to their price rises and go for more and find ways of of keeping those margins at historic highs is going to do better. Uh, defensives recommend themselves, of course, in this environment. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know when you you have tightening credit, falling growth, um, rising rates, and um, you know, diminishing uh, profits. I'm avoiding both both growth and value, which has been a big beta around for the last 12 months. Um, you know, growth has been all, almost acting as a bit of a safe haven in recent times as, as um, some bonds have gotten bid and interest rates have started to come down in markets, uh, which, you know, typically is associated with buy longer duration stocks like growth and tech, uh, but I think they're going to get hit hard in a recession anyway, so I, I don't don't buy that argument. And value um, is 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 going to be hit uh, if we have a cyclical downturn, things like banks, materials, miners, etc. I mean, they're, they're all going to cop it. Yeah, and two things I want to add. One is on the value side that... Um yeah, even once you get outside those and you get into the stocks that are that are the non uh, non 
energy and non-banking sort of value stocks is that most of those stocks tend to be price takers and they tend to be stocks that they are value stocks that they're priced low because they've got commodity or commodity-like products and they're, they're selling stuff like, you know, whatever, call it tires or, or, or something that's, that's relatively um, indistinguishable from, its, from, its, uh, from, other, from other things and you just don't have the pricing power. And so the issue with the, those value stocks, or, or actually most of the autos, is, is pretty, pretty sits in that as well. You know that, yes, you know, happy to buy a Kia if it's twenty thousand dollars, but if you double the price, um, you know, all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of other cars that that'll um, that, that present a similar value um, to. And so traditionally, those companies don't get to raise their prices over the cycle, and, and they're, they're the ones that suffered most from deflation for, for for the last twenty years. They've just had this. 18 month, two year window where they've been able to raise prices. And so um, what we're really looking for is the, st the, the, the stocks that will be able to hold on to those price rises and, and the value stocks will not be those ones. They're the ones that are going to get smashed back. Uh, and then the other thing on the defensive upside, um, traditionally uh, real estate investment trusts are, are often thought as defensive. Uh, we just want to highlight that they're, let's go a little bit into the next one, but just want to highlight that, that there's some stuff going on within that that, that you want to be careful of. The other thing is within defensives, you've got a lot of energy utilities and, and just want to highlight again that there's a lot going on in the energy space. Um, you know, a, a defensive exposure, you need to actually dig in and just make sure that the stocks you've got in there are genuinely defensive and, and they don't have um, uh, characteristics that this time is actually going to, they're going to suffer from. And so, yes, on both those fronts, um, yeah, just sort of a bit, bit, bit of care in terms of the stocks you, you're trying to choose. Yes, quite right. And so we'll carry on with that sector allocation discussion then. I mean, the things, the primary thing uh, that Damo is referring to in terms of REITs, for instance, is, you know, there is a commercial property bust that's that's underway uh, across developed markets, um, which has come from, you know, a structural adjustment out of COVID. We work from home. And so we've got these very, very high uh, vacancy rates across CBDs as a result. And, you know, those prices were kind of, you know, deflating in a gentlemanly manner um, before we kind of hit this uh, banking crisis in the US. And that, that um, as I noted earlier on, the, that the, the regional banks are responsible for 80% for of the lending into uh, that commercial real estate, including offices. And so now we're facing the prospect in the US and likely it will spread from there of not just uh, this this uh, high vacancy rate problem, which is structural, but at a cyclical shock in terms of credit availability. And so those prices are going to fall more quickly. And so that is for office towers in particular and associated retail, I would say. So you have... There are other areas of commercial property that are doing much better industrial and things for like that, for instance, but uh, the the CBDs are to be avoided. And so there are a lot of A rates with heavy exposure to that segment. And so that's why they should be avoided. They're going to get an absolute caning. Um, I shouldn't just say non-banks. I should just say non-banks and banks um, are to be avoided while we go through this. Although some of them... Some of them will certainly be hit some in some countries and segments will certainly be, be hit harder than others. Like, for instance, it's the regionals in the US. European banks might, may or may not come through it better. Like, they're certainly not as exposed 
um, to some of the troubled areas um, and haven't been lending like the US regionals the last few years. Plus, if you think there are higher rates for longer than the European banks, which have been unable to kind of get any spread and earnings power for years, will be able to do so. And so, you know, there's there are possibilities in there as this crisis evolves to buy. But what we're saying at this point is you don't want to be holding them right now. Um, uh, discretionary retail, uh, certainly in Australia, but I think worldwide that's a, that's a bit of a bummer, uh, except I should say in China, um, where I think it is largely consumer-led, uh, the rebound. So, you know, that's that's an exception, but across the developed markets, I'm avoiding discretionary retail. Uh, and materials, as we've discussed, and I've, I've just slipped super funds in there. Um, you want to be careful of of some very large Australian and prestigious Australian super funds have you know, pretty material holdings of commercial real estate, um, especially office, uh, and they they've always used these as a way of kind of smoothing their returns over the cycle because they don't mark to market very quickly the values of these properties um, and uh, that that can be a real problem for um, performance uh, once the cycle's over because they're sort of continuing to write down those uh, those values as you move into the recovery and so if you've put some money in uh, at the wrong moment you're actually underperforming as they put themselves before their clients but I have I have seen some stuff today um, in the AFR about APRA warning them to write stuff down more quickly, obviously aware that the deflation is stronger than, than perhaps other cycles in, in recent times. Uh, and so anyway, you should be aware that your super fund may have quite a, quite a, a lot of exposure to that deflation. Yeah. And, and, and chances are, though, there are assets that are already booked, uh, booked reasonably high above, um, above their book value. Uh, so, the, so the unlisted assets are probably sorry. The unlisted assets are, are, are kept on superannuation books right now, already a fair bit higher than, than what the listed counterparts are. So, because if you look at um, the some of the performance indexes, what you see is that your average super fund has um, with with basically a similar as, asset allocation to to a to a listed just to someone who holds listed assets has basically outperformed by, by a significant margin on, on the way down. So as all these markets are falling, so there's one of two cases, either, um, you know, all, all the Australian super funds all managed to, to buy the best quality assets and so therefore didn't, you know, out, so they outperformed anything that was listed or they've all got a, or, or the whole bunch of them have a list of these unlisted assets that they're not marking to market properly. And um, you know, one of the, the first may well be true, but it, but it, it seems highly unlikely. It's much more likely that <laughs> they just all own, they own the same assets as everyone else. It's just they're not they're not marking the price down. And so what that means is if if you stick a thousand dollars into your super fund right now, you're straight away getting you know nine hundred and fifty dollars worth of assets. So and then what what they'll do is eventually they'll they'll eventually that'll come come right, but they'll just hold that thousand dollars. You know, they're unlisted assets. They'll just hold it flat for as long as they possibly can. Until it, you know, the assets all cycle down, and then once they start climbing again, they'll they'll try and uh, raise it again. Which is, you know, from from smoothing your earnings, it's fantastic. As as a, as a fund manager, it's great. I get to report much better results, and you know, I just get to smooth all my earnings. The issue is, um, you know, I'm going to look like I'm doing better on the way down, and and look like I'm doing worse on the way up. 
for anyone who's actually um, in one of these funds, if there's people selling out, they get to sell out $950 worth of um, uh, worth of assets. They get to sell it for $1,000. And everyone who's left in the super fund, you know, bears the, bears the price. So. Mm. Um, so longs, you know, typical defensive stuff, staples, healthcare, utilities, um, but with the with the provisos um, that Damo's noted, especially with the energy crisis on the utilities, there are some peculiarities in healthcare as well, Damo, at the moment, with sort of coming out of the COVID cycle. Mm. Um, so there are some risks in there, stock to stock. So it's not. Uh, in terms of sector allocations, it's not quite as simple as it would be normally. Um, so we're, we're quite quite careful about what stocks we're buying as well as, uh, you know, what sectors um, because they've all got some, some peculiarities um, in this cycle that make some of the defensive uh, a lot less uh, safe than normal. So that pretty much covers me. Okay, nice one. Uh, so now we have our question of the week. This is for viewers to have some discussion in the comment section over the coming days. The question for this week is, is a credit crunch inevitable? Feel free to post your thoughts and engage with us and some of our other viewers over the coming days. And we have had a few viewer questions come through. Uh, so one from present day, uh, they're asking, should we move our deposits to the big four banks in Australia? Uh, I'll take this one. So, um, you know, the, again, it's, this is, you know, general general advice and all that type of stuff, not specifically. Uh, yeah, my take is that um, in terms of banking, if you're going to fail, if, if you have a bank that fails when everyone else is failing or, or you're a very big bank that fails, chances are your deposit is getting bailed out. Um, if you're a, a smaller bank and you fail all by yourself, okay, now you've got now you're in now you got problems if you if you if you, if you blow it up. So um, as a sort of as a general rule, um, you know you probably you, if there's if you're worried about bank failures, you're much better off being in one of the big four because they're almost certainly going to get bailed out. And that any any government that decided not to bail out one of the big four banks that was having problems and and decided not to return depositors all their money. Um, would basically be condemning their own political party to um, to, to never getting back in power again. Um, so yeah, so 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 yeah. So my my take is um, you, you you're safer at a big four, but you know if, if we're going to run into a problem, it's probably going to affect lots of banks, and they're probably going to have to step in and, and bail out lots of banks if something goes wrong. Okay, nice one. Uh, so we've had another question, one from Wolf. Say, let me just add something. Uh, I'm not expecting a, a banking crisis in Australia, in particular. Um, I, it's been un, uh, in the last kind of six or eight months. It's been really interesting watching Australia versus the global cycle. Um, you know, we were six months behind six months ago, and we suddenly took a huge leap forward late last year in terms of slowing uh, as the RBA's rate hikes took effect because we're more interest rate sensitive than anybody else. Uh, but this banking crisis is now, you know, kind of reversed it again and the US has leapfrogged forward over the top of us to a more, much more uh, downturn precarious position than Australia. And uh, don't get me wrong, I, I think some of the banking stresses that we're seeing 
um, will flow into Australia, but I'm not anticipating a huge credit crunch here. Uh, moreover, uh, you know, the RBA has plenty of ammunition to cut. Yes, we still have the <coughs> inflation problem, but uh, I, I do think that's going to evaporate as, you know, this global shock transpires, um, at least in the short term, enough for the RBA to stabilise if we had a problem. Um, so Australia looks relatively okay. The other feature of, of why Australia looks okay in the banking terms is uh, at least the major banks, they, they have quite modest holdings of commercial real estate. So the, the CBDs that we've been talking about as being in distress, um, largely because, you know, they nearly bankrupted the, the banks here in 1990. They have actually uh, held relatively conservative uh, levels of commercial real estate loans ever since, about 6% of the book, something like that. Um, so if there is going to be stress here from commercial realty, it's more likely to be in non-banks. Uh, maybe some smaller banks. I can't say with authority on that though, but and certainly in REITs. Um, so uh, I'm not too concerned about the banking crisis coming to bear on Australia as a contextual comment for the question. Okay, uh, so next question. Uh, bonds look to be back. Uh, will Aussie bonds do as well as US bonds? <sighs> well, I mean, we like Aussie bonds because um, we don't, we're not confident on, on the Forex risk at the moment. Um, and so, you know, that, that, you know, if you're going to buy US bonds, you'd, you'd want to be confident um, that the US dollar is going to rally as so well. You've got to spend the extra money on hedging in the end of or, or hedge them out, yes. Um, I, I mean, I, I think uh, in terms of possible return, um, gee, I mean, I think I can't think of any. I mean, as I, I guess what I've said in terms of at this stage, it looks like the US may be hit harder by a credit crunch than Australia. Um, but at the same time, they have much stronger wage growth. And so they probably need to be hit harder for inflation to come down, that being the point in reference to bonds. Um, so I don't know. Those things kind of all just come out in the wash for me. So, you know, we're, we're using uh aussie govies not treasuries okay uh excellent so we've got another question from david lees he's asking what happens if inflation doesn't fall despite the banking crisis where will rates go yeah well that's a good one um uh i can't say why it would happen it's just just a case of you know, if, if this credit crunch doesn't transpire, like it just settles down enough for, for banking to go back to normal, um, then the Fed just goes higher, it keeps going higher um, until something else breaks. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the Fed looks hawkish enough to break inflation. I don't think that they're Paul Volcker 
but they're certainly not Arthur Burns. Uh, they want to, to stomp on inflation in the US. We might only get down to 3%. I don't know. I think we're actually likely to, um, you know, have a decent recession and, and even squash it to, to zero or have a bit of deflation for a few quarters or whatever. And then, then it might rebound. But uh, I think you've got enough hawkishness uh, and enough runs on the board in the Fed uh, to be confident that it will just keep going until it breaks enough things. And so, so I guess the answer to your question is, if inflation doesn't fall, it will likely be because we're not going into credit crunch. And so therefore, yes. Fed keeps raising rates. You'll get more Fed until something else breaks. Yeah, and we do get a credit crunch. So so effectively, um, you know, we, we've got this view that uh, a lot of the world's been sort of financialized and that where we're, what we're really, you know, it, it's all about the flow of credit now. And, and, if, and if the flow of credit, we've got so much, so much credit out there and we're reliant so much on this credit keeping on coming in order to generate growth, that if the credit slows down, the growth actually comes to a, uh, comes to a pretty, uh, comes to a halt pretty quickly. And so, uh, yeah, and so I guess that from, that's sort of the, the, the basis of our, our um, sort of outlook on a lot of this. And, and with that basis, uh, you know, you've, if, if credit does stop flowing, um, you, inflation is, is going to hold as well at the same time because growth everywhere is going to slow. Yeah. Um, like that's not to say there aren't some inflationary stuff that's underway. The, the war in Ukraine, for instance, um, energy, um, but the, I mean, the, those things are still there, but they are well past their, their zenith and, there's a lot of deflation really embedding in a lot of those prices now as well. Like oil's already down materially year on year. Um, LNG has been destroyed, even though it's still still double the historical prices. Um, you know, coal has been destroyed, even though it's still way up on on pre-Ukraine prices. So, I mean, I, I think if we have a decent recession, there's, there's still a lot of potential deflation to come out of energy. Uh, so, yeah, as Damo says, um, they'll just keep it going until until something breaks and, and then there's more deflation to come. And, of course, we haven't discussed one of the features we've talked about uh, on and off for the last year, which is a, a, an inventory cycle as well. Um, where not all inventories, but a, but a sizable portion of in inventories in both Australia and the US, are, the inventory levels are very high uh, in, in anticipation of this ongoing COVID boom. And so if it actually goes bust, then, then that will uh, unwind and you know, then, then you've suddenly got a, a lot of companies with no pricing power. And stuck with you know very high inventories of, of of goods that they need to get rid of. Okay, excellent. So we have one last question. Uh, so question is: There was a time after the GFC when the U.S. markets and the dollar were low against the Aussie. Uh, could that happen again? Absolutely. That's what I expect to happen. So. Uh, because the dollar's been so high with the perfect storm of COVID uh, 
and inflation, which the US led, uh, you know, reach very, very high levels. And so uh, once once we break enough stuff that we see deflation or disinflate and see enough disinflation and the Fed can cut, then uh, it's it's one of those great cyclical plays is that the US dollar will fall and help reflate the whole world. Uh, and so you, yes, absolutely should be anticipating that. And and so the play there is to be, be long US as, as, a, as an exposure, but you, you, you probably want hedged exposure at that point relative to the Aussie dollar. Look, uh, uh, yes, and the play there as well is, is Anything um, stimulated by a falling US dollar, that includes commodities, um, which you want to be buying at the bottom of the cycle. And, you know, this is a point I've made a number of different times where uh, at the bottom of the cycle, there and thereabouts, you can be buying assets that, that are uh, cyclically appropriate and at the same time will also give you a structural play if you think inflation is not going to be dead. Like if you do think that the world is in a higher inflationary environment, like commodities. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so so and just to make it clear, we're not saying this is the time to do it yet. You've got to wait wait till things, no, no. things get bad. But but I guess what we're saying is at that point you're buying you're buying commodities because you're saying, okay, this is going to benefit from this upswing. And then if you if you think inflation's going to keep going, then you just hold on to them and keep yes. keep into the keep keep going. And if so you think inflation's going to come up again, then right. you're going and to so it's a, so it's a US, falling US dollar play initially. And that's where your gold play comes in in terms of the cycle, but also industrial commodities. And then, yeah, that could turn into uh, a structural play if you think that inflation is staying high. So, um, you know, that's an example of one benef benefit of a falling US dollar. Um, you know, Aussie dollar rising, so you'd want to be hedging on your international stuff, maybe even going longer Australia uh, is another way of playing that. Um, um, you know, and in, in terms of your sector allocations, you, you'd want to be avoiding US dollar earners in Australia, things like that. Okay, Excellent. nice one. Excellent. So, yeah, thanks to all the viewers that have uh, asked some great questions today. Really, uh, you know, stimulating some good ideas there. And uh, that pretty much wraps us up. So, Dave, Damo, thank you again for coming on the show and uh, putting it all out there. Thanks, Sam. Pleasure. Thanks, Sam. Excellent. If you enjoy our content and want us to continue to make more, please subscribe on our YouTube channel now. Click the bell below to be notified to make sure you don't miss out on any special special episodes and content we put out. If you missed the article Damien wrote this week on inflation, you can subscribe via the link in the show notes and you'll get our weekly Nucleus News and Investment Insights. Like the video now and if you know of anyone that might get some value out of today's episode, please share it with them. We do welcome your feedback on this podcast, especially in regards to suggestions for future topics. If you do have any ideas, please drop it in the comment section below or send us an email at contact at And if you'd like to look at the slides in more detail, we'll post them in the show notes this afternoon and you can view these at nucleuswealth.com forward slash webinars. So for myself, Damien, Dave, and the rest of the team at Nucleus Wealth, thanks for watching and we look forward to seeing you next week. Bye for now.